bounty hunting is a complicated profession, which is why we're here to discuss The Mandalorian. My name is Dan Morin. This is, as I said, a complicated profession, the show where we recap The Mandalorian, currently airing on Disney+. And every week, I invite a different guest on with me to discuss this week's episode. And here with me today is my very good friend, author and podcaster, Anthony Johnston. Welcome to the show, Anthony. Uh, thank you for having me, Dan. It's, uh, this is my first time on it, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I, I've had no repeat guests so far, so I'm... Oh, wow, right. Yeah, uh, there, may be, there may be one coming later in the season, but I, I've been trying to get as many different people on as possible, because I like, I like hearing everybody's... Everyone's excited, and I like hearing everybody's different opinions about it. Well, and it speaks to the popularity of this show as well. Like, this show yeah. seems to have much broader appeal than uh you know than other some other elements of the star wars canon sure. shall we say yeah which considering that it is such a sort of small scale and hyper focused show is kind of surprising i think that's a big reason why it's so successful honestly like you know we've we've seen the big huge like epic spanning tales right and like as much as that's associated with star wars and people like those things i think people also craved this idea of poking into the further recesses of the universe right like it's oh, such sure. a big yeah. universe and there's like oh there's all these interesting pockets that we can explore so i think that is a big part of the appeal of the show and and since you've already sort of uh, delved into it again talk a little bit for you you about like what you've loved about the show or what's excited you or uh you know what have you the floor is yours <laughs> well yeah i mean i i do enjoy the show a lot uh and part of the reason for that is like i'm i'm an old school Star Wars fan. Mm -hmm. I'm an old Star Wars fan. <laughs> you know, I saw the original trilogy in the theaters. Uh, and I am, I describe myself as I'm a big fan, but I'm not a comprehensive fan. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I don't read the tie-in novelizations. I don't tend to read the comic books. Uh, I've never seen Clone Wars. I've only seen season one of Rebels. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that sort of thing. So I know Star Wars. You know, I know how to spell Wookiee correctly. <laughs> I know... There is a know, test at the end of the show, just so we're clear. <laughs> yeah. You know, I know who Ahsoka is, for example, you know, but not in a kind of, I can tell you everything about the character kind of way. Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. example, I'd never heard of Bo-Katan right. before last week. I had no idea until everybody started discussing it online that she was a character who already existed in the canon. Um, so that's the kind of level of fan I am. Like I say, you know, big fan, but don't know everything. But one of the ways in which that fandom manifested was in 1987, so 10 years after the original release of, you know, what we now know as episode four, um, West End Games released mm. the first Star Wars role-playing game, mm -hmm. which I love for many reasons, not least of which I, I've got is just that it... I've got to copy great, that rule book on my Yeah, on it's my a shelf. great game, and it has some great systems in it. I love how the system the game system, you know, sort of works to evoke the feeling of Star Wars. But all that sort of nerdiness aside, one of the things that I loved about it and that my me and my friends all loved about it was that it wasn't about high-powered mm -hmm. Luke Skywalker-style Jedi saving the universe. It was about the Outer Rims. It was about the rogue traders. It was about the bounty hunters and the down-and-dirty people here living on the edges who weren't actually that involved in all the big mythic stuff uh and that really appealed to us and appealed to me and that's what i love about the mandalorian mm -hmm. as you said you know at the start it is that kind of those pockets of it is absolutely star wars you know you only have to look i mean regardless of the the main character obviously he looks a bit like boba fett anybody's going to recognize that but even if you take that away 
it's instantly recognisable as Star Wars. The production design, the mm-hmm. costumes, the vehicles, the way it's shot, everything about it is clearly Star Wars. And yet, it is a kind of Star Wars that if you only know the cinematic movies, you will never have really seen before. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's really commendable. The fact that they've managed to strike that balance so well is really impressive. And also, yes, this hyper-focus that I mentioned at the start means that they can focus on the characters yeah much more so than these cinematic movies you know you can get much much deeper into the characters and make them more complex and involved and again i think that's a large part of why this show has been successful because you can do that in a tv series that you can't do in a 90 minute or two hour movie yeah um also Space westerns, yeah, you know, it's kind of a subgenre now. It's it's got its own feel, and people kind of know what they are. Um, and when you combine that with the lone wolf and cub homage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of Mando and the Child, it's uh, it just seems to be a winning formula. And they're doing it right. Yeah, I mean that's the other thing. They're clearly doing it with love and affection, but also a great deal of skill, uh, storytelling skill that isn't sort of frittered away so yeah, yeah i'm yeah big fan that's that's an interesting point i i think that's um something that's interesting to look at is like there's clearly a lot of things that we've seen in the past that have been made by people who are star wars fans you know in, in inside and outside of the star wars canon itself and a lot of times you'll see stuff where it's like well that was clearly made by people who love this but like maybe they didn't quite execute really well or you'll see stuff that will like you know, the, I would argue some of the executions of the uh, the newest trilogy are are solid, but like they lose a little bit of some of the affection. Whereas this show really does hit that Venn diagram point of like people who are love and are passionate about that original trilogy, especially, and people who are really fantastic at this kind of storytelling. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and really that's good storytelling. It's a hard needle to thread there, but I think they do a great job with it. And I'm intrigued, too, because you mentioned, like, you know, not being a comprehensive fan, you don't know about some of the histories of some of these characters, but it doesn't seem like that's necessarily negatively impacted your enjoyment or your buy-in on the story, even if you're like, oh, I didn't know Bo-Katan was a person. But, like, it, it didn't matter, really. Like, everything you needed to know about that exchange is sort of contained within that and if there's stuff around that it's you know it it adds maybe some depth and richness to people who already know about it but i don't think it takes away anything if you don't exactly and that is part of striking that balance and having been involved in that sort of thing with like you know transmedia for video games and Mm -hmm, stuff mm -hmm. myself that is a really hard balance to strike right where something is as you say um makes enough callbacks and has enough references that the the bigger fans will go ha ha i recognize that and it enriches my experience <laughs> but the more casual fans or the people who just don't read all that stuff can still get as you say everything they need to enjoy that part of the story from it and that's exactly how i felt about um last episode i mean the dark saber stuff yeah like i didn't know that was a thing yeah. because i have never haven't watched rebels i think it is far enough yeah. Uh, so I had no idea that the Darksaber was a thing. And when he came out of the TIE Fighter at the end of season one, I was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> but it just looked cool, right? Like, you're right, like oh man, right. that's but awesome. It, what is that? Exactly. Yeah. It's not like it ruined it for me. I yeah. was just like, oh wow, he's got some kind of weird lightsaber. What the hell is going on here? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that was a, a great way of leaving the, the end of that first season hanging. 
Um, all right, well, let's step through this week's episode a bit, and we'll talk about there, because I think there are some good examples in here of, like, homages that don't necessarily detract too much, um, but, mm. like, do provide, like, little fun tidbits for people. Uh, so this week's episode is Chapter 12, The Siege. And we open with the Razor Crest still kind of floating around in space, having some trouble. Uh, I, the nice cameo here from the Falcon's failing hyperdrive sound from Empire as they can't quite get to work. Oh, I missed that. Oh, well, it's right at the beginning. It's got the... Excellent. Mando's trying to get stuff working, and he's got he's enlisted Baby Yoda into a tiny crawl space to connect some wires, which is not going very well in a scene that I thought was pretty hilarious, actually, as he tries to... No, the red... Put the red one where the blue one went, and Baby Yoda's just like, ooh, wires, like... <laughs> Yeah, maybe you should immediately have... slams them together yeah so don't don't no don't get it i was yeah my my wife commented something about child labor laws i'm like oh it's not technically i mean is it labor he's just asking him to help out you know <laughs> um but it's, it... one of the things that i do like about the relationship between mando and uh, child is that it is like if you have been an adult around mm-hmm. children and especially if you've been around other adults who don't know how to deal with small mm-hmm. children like it rings true yeah. you know here is a guy who has no idea how to deal with a baby uh and you can tell because he's clearly you know he's trying to do too much and talking to it as if it's an adult and expecting it to react in the same way and of course it doesn't and you know it's all funny but it is also kind of I mean, I don't want to say true to life necessarily, because I might be giving it a bit more credit than it deserves. But you know what I mean? The relationship rings true. Yeah. I mean, you can see Mando's thought process, right? And where he comes from. He's like, well, I need to get into that place. I'm not small. What do I have that's small? Yeah. Oh, I have a baby, you know, like, and anybody else would be like, you can't put a baby in there. And he's just like, this is this, you know, this round peg fits in this round hole. It seems like it makes sense to me. But not only that, but you can't expect to put a baby in there and have, have the baby yeah. understand what yeah. you want it to do. <laughs> and not electrocute itself right yeah. um but i do i do love how it, everything in star wars and especially in this series again because it's a sort of outer rim series everything is so old mm-hmm. and jury rigged and i mean it makes no logical sense but it's one of the things i've always loved about star wars is how beat up everything is yeah. and the fact that you've got these things these tin cans that look like they're welded together you know in the back of a shop and yet they travel up faster than light speeds right. you know under yeah. airtight jalopies yeah it's, it makes no logical well, sense but it feels great you made the comment about the production design early on and i think that's one of the things i love the most about this show is that it really buys into that 1970s production value because i remember thinking yeah. when the prequels came out as a teenager like oh man like how are they gonna change the technology it's so weird because like the technology then looked old but now we're telling stories that were before that yet our technology in the world we live in is now so much better than that that it's going to look weird but i feel like this show just leans so hard into like yep you've got buttons with lights on them and like occasionally yeah there are displays that are a little more sophisticated computer graphics wise but like it looks so similar and so consistent with everything that we have seen from those original trilogy like it just they just really really love that look and that design clearly yeah, well, and that comes up later in the episode mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. the targeting uh, computers, yes. which, I mean, we all know what a Star Wars targeting computer looks like by now. But when you stop to think about it for even a moment, you're like, this is the worst <laughs> <laughs> targeting system ever. Why would you ever. use this? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so the Mandalorian and the child are sort of convening after failing to get the, the ship working. They're having their little separate drinks. I really love this scene because it's a short scene and, and kind of a minor thing. But like, so the Mandalorian like tips mm. up his helmet a couple times to take yes. uh, to take a drink. And we've all, you know, had this comment through the entire series. Like, how does he eat? How does he drink? Like, does he, how far can you go with the not taking the helmet off thing? And what I enjoyed about this was it, it shows it kind of literally, again, I think I used this expression last week, but like it's literally like a crack in his armor. And I wondered if some of this is the the input and the feelings he's, you know, after his experience with Bo-Katan and the other Mandalorians, like starting to erode some of his confidence in his creed. And like, well, those were Mandalorians and they took their helmets off. And so like, it's yeah. like the slightest bit of like, well, I'm going to, it's just me and the child. Like I can just take it off a little bit. Like no one's around. No one's going to see that I have like broken my don't take the helmet off thing. And I kind of thought that was an interesting little move there. Well, and don't forget, we did see him take it off at the end mm-hmm. of... The first, the first season, season as well. Because the know, droid so that, was there. Yeah, there were loopholes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like, even before Bo-Katan, there were already clearly thoughts about, you know, how to sort of get around this. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It is interesting. One of the things I really liked about this scene, though, apart from that it is just a nice little character scene, and again, that's talking about the balance and the quality of storytelling. There's a lot of filmmakers that would have cut that and gone, oh, we don't need that. It's unnecessary. But mm-hmm. it is necessary. Um but one of the things I liked about it was the sound design. Yeah. Like, you can hear little pssst Yeah, when he takes it off, right. Sounds when he's, like, lifting his helmet up. And when he puts it back down again, you can hear it click yeah. back into place. Mm-hmm. Just little things in the sound design like that absolutely great. sell it for me. Yeah. Again, like, you know, it's so easy to overlook, but not. The attention to detail there is, uh, is excellent. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so there's no way they're making it to their destination, and instead they're going to have to make a pit stop and go back to Navarro and see some friends. Um, meanwhile, on Navarro, we see the remains of the Mandalorian covert, uh, which has apparently been taken over by a bunch of Aqualish thugs who are fighting amongst themselves over some shares of uh, you know, stolen goods. Uh, and there's a little space weasel that they're going to eat. <laughs> Yeah, I completely misunderstood this scene. I, I, I literally watched it twice and both times completely misunderstood what it was. I thought that they were raiding the armorer's mm. uh, den, not that they had taken it up as their hideout. And it wasn't until I actually looked up this episode on Wikipedia <laughs> that I realized, oh, that's what they were doing. Okay. Yeah, I, I got the impression most stuff was gone already. I mean, like, it's unclear. What we don't entirely know is how long has elapsed since mm, the Mandal left that, yeah. Navarro. Yeah, they're kind of... A lot has changed, as we see, when the Mandalorian shows up. I mean, so what we get in this scene is a, a fun fight scene uh, with Cara Dune, who is now apparently the marshal on Navarro, and she comes in and sort of sweeps them up quite handily in a uh, in a good martial arts sequence. There's a great bit where she, like, rolls backwards over a guy and then uses him as a shield and then, like, throws him at one of the other thugs, uh, which is pretty nice. Um, and then at the end, she sort of gathers up all the goods and she says, you know, we have to return these essentially to the people who lost them. So, um, and then she but also as you say, it, saves the It's weasel. not clear. Yeah, it's not yeah. clear how much time right. elapsed. It's exactly. not like, it feels like it's probably not fully a year and yet mm-hmm. it's clearly more than just a few weeks. Right, exactly. Um, that initial fight <laughs> just made me laugh because again, it is one of those things that does not make any sense about the Star Wars universe, but you just kind of roll with it. Mm-hmm. I mean... I will 
And, and, and that is, like, to, to cut to the chase, is just the lack of emphasis with the lack of use of blasters. Like, I will happily watch Gina Carano beat up on dudes all day long. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, let's be clear. I would watch Gina Carano watch paint dry all day long. But given the choice, <laughs> I'll watch her beat up on dudes. But, like, why go in there with fists? Why not just shoot everyone? It's such a strange choice. And I know why. Yeah. Because they want to re-emphasize that she is this very physical character, very capable character. But like I say, again, you think about it for more than a moment, you're like, why don't she just shoot everyone? She, that's what she ends up doing anyway. Yeah, with the last They guy, all yeah. end up getting shot. Yes. <laughs> you know, in the I, I, I kind of feel like she's looking for a challenge. Like, that to me is the way I read that character. Is mm, like, maybe, maybe. This is not, eh, this is just sweeping up some thugs. Like, I could do this in my sleep, but... Uh, I'm I'm looking to get a workout or something. But yes, you're right. It's not the most effective way of doing it, but it does once again demonstrate how capable she is. Um, the Razor Crest lands back on Navarro. It's looking extremely rickety. Uh, the ramp doesn't even go down all the way when yeah. the Mandalorian <laughs> That was down. a lovely touch. Yep. Uh, and so uh, he's greeted by Grief Karga and Cara Dune and uh, basically gets uh, Grief to agree to fix up the ship with his best people. I love in this scene how much Carl Weathers loves the child is oh, my favorite he's like a part. Doting grandparent. <laughs> yes, it's so good. He's been taking good care of you, hasn't he? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I mean, you know, this is the whole bond that they got at the end of last season when he healed him, right? And like at that point, you know, yeah. you could tell he's like, oh, I will die for this child now. And I, I love that, that relationship. It's fantastic. Um, we have two of the crew members, uh, like ground crew, are fixing it up, and we get a suspicious lingering shot on one of it, them. So obvious that so that guy was going to be trouble. <laughs> uh, so that I'm gonna. This is where I have a, a, a sort of a tie-in because that character is a Mimbanese character. Um, they've been seen in a couple other places. I guess they were supposedly first seen in Solo, although it may have been a scene that was cut. It's the scene where Solo is fighting uh, when he first joins. Uh, the Empire, and we see him on the Mud Planet. I think that's supposed oh, yeah. to be Mimban. Um, and they're mentioned, I think, in a couple other places. However, Mimban first appeared in the classic Star Wars novel Splinter of the Mind's Eye back in oh, 1978, wow. uh, written by Alan Dean Foster. Uh, on, I think that's the planet that Luke and Leia go to and end up fighting with Darth Vader over a crystal of some kind. So... It has been many, many years since it's, I read Splinter of the Mind's Eye. So. It's not a great book. I'm just going to say that. <laughs> it's, it's the, it suffers mainly from the fact that it was written like basically directly after the first movie and thus had no knowledge of anything that was coming. So like yeah. a large part of that plays up like a Luke and Leia romance and stuff like that. And it's like, whoa, <laughs> you know. But Yeah, I, no, you know. It's, it's been many years since I read that. And we should probably, as the date we're recording you know events this week we should probably talk then about the alan dean foster uh novelization situation yeah yeah which is which is really kind of i mean it's been bubbling under people have known that it's been bubbling under for a while but it really exploded into the uh fandom consciousness as it were this week yeah yeah so this is this issue where disney obviously acquired lucasfilm which had been the original company to uh, you know, contract these novelizations out. And Alan Dean Foster had written both this Plunder of the Mind's Eye as well as the original novelization of the film Star Wars uh, back in 1977. Um, and the issue at stake here seems to be Disney claiming that it doesn't have to pay Alan Dean Foster any royalties, despite the fact that it's still selling these books, which 
every person, and you and I are both authors and have dealt with many of our fair share of contracts, and we kind of are scratching our heads going like, that's not how anything works. Like, if if you've contracted a person to write the book, the deal is you pay them for writing that book. Well, and so I've seen some people online suggest that and speculate that maybe this is one of those work-for-hire contracts that doesn't pay Mm -hmm. royalties. Uh, um, You know, it's just a straight-fee buyout. And that previously Lucasfilm did pay royalties to keep Alan Dean Foster sweet, but now Disney have decided that they're not going to do that anymore. And that would be plausible in in terms of, like, those contracts do exist. There are contracts like that, absolutely, Mm -hmm. where sort of royalty-like payments are made on a voluntary basis, uh, you know, just for one reason or another, to keep an author sweet or, or something. But if that was the case, there is no way that Foster and mm-hmm. his lawyers exactly. and the Science Fiction Writers of America and their lawyers would be fighting this right. so hard. Right. They, they would because, know they would lose that, right? Yeah, exactly, you know, uh, because they would look at the contract and go, well, they're not actually obligated to pay you. They have been, but that's not in your contract, therefore you can't win this. Um, right. and, and Disney has clearly made these, can't be the case. Disney has made these somewhat spurious claim that they acquired the rights but not the obligations, which is... I don't, not even a sentence that quite parses with me. I'm not even sure what argument you're making there. It it makes no sense. I mean, and that also puts the lie to, you know, they are admitting that there are obligations in the contract for them to pay in royalties. Yeah, Yeah. and and, and it's it's particularly perplexing because, you know, obviously these books have been in print for more than 40 years. For a long time. Yeah, (laughs) again, and it's like... Guys, you you know Disney's making billions of dollars a year. How much could Alan Dean Foster's royalties, even if you generalize it to all of the people, it's decided maybe not to pay royalties to? Really, how much could this be? Like you know, it seems very very miserly, and that's I think the thing that's that's very upsetting. <laughs> I saw it described online by someone as uh, penny wise and very very pound foolish, yes. and I think that's absolutely true. The amounts of money, and you can you can understand that somebody might look at it and go, well. If you extrapolate this out, we could actually save millions of dollars every year. Right, right. Sure, but you're Disney. Yeah. Like, yeah. millions of dollars is a rounding error right. plus, to you. Plus, the, the, the jeopardy you're putting on all future relationships with creatives, right? Like, I mean, you, own, yeah. you own not yeah. only Star Wars, but Marvel and Fox and all these things with licensed properties. Uh, presumably, you want to hire people to write for those things. And let's be honest, it's not like you're hiring them as salaried individuals. They are contractors. They're going to want to get paid for stuff. And, you know, they're even if they don't have a royalty structure, like, they want to believe that you're as good as your word. And, like, that's yeah. that's risky. It's risky. It really erodes trust, yeah. So I, I don't see how Disney comes out of this. I don't see how they can win. And I don't see how they can possibly come out of it looking good in terms of yeah, PR. Think, it's a very strange situation. I think they have to situation. walk it back. I think that's that's the only way out of it. And even then, they're going to take some flack for it. Yeah. All right. Anyway, so, but yes, yeah, suspicious dude, as I say. Suspicious dude. Suspicious, suspicious immediately. Very suspicious. <laughs> uh, Navarro has become a hip-hop happening place. There's lots of commerce in the streets. Everything looks much more bright and colorful than the last several times we were here when everything was very gray and subdued. Mm. Um they have a conversation about how the Mando ship got shot up by the New Republic, and Grief Cargo thinks the New Republic should stay out of the Outer Rim because even the Empire couldn't really deal with it. Uh, they go to what was, I believe, the bar uh, that they yes. used to meet in, and it's now a school um, where a protocol droid is teaching a bunch of children. Um, and yeah, they, it's the bar that got shut up at the right, end of the season end of, one. Yep, you know? yep. Yeah, it's that which I think was sort of the Grief Cargo's like meeting place and. 
yeah. uh, unofficial office. Um, grief uh, leaves the child there, um, which causes a lot of whispering amongst the other <laughs> kids. Uh, and I noted my my wife and I both noticed there is a there is a girl about halfway back that has the same um, basically I think Ray's hairstyle. Uh, with like the oh, triple braid thing, that. which I thought was, I thought that was cool just because, I, you know, I'm not suggesting that's right. It's clearly not. But the idea of like certain things, you know, fashions, for example, yeah, transcend yeah, yeah. different yeah. worlds. I like that. Yeah, um, that's good. Um, the, and stealing that fellow kids. The uh, cookies. <laughs> cookies or whatever they were. Like, they look like uh, macarons. They look like macarons, yeah. Yeah. Uh, was just again inevitable. The minute that I saw those, I was like, yep. "Oh yeah, he's going to use the force to steal them." Isn't obviously, he? <laughs> obviously, it's still a good scene. It's well paced. It's got some funniness to it. Where he's, you know, the kid doesn't want to share his cookies, and then all of a sudden the cookies are on Baby Yoda's desk, and Baby Yoda's very happily crunching away at them. One of the things I liked about this as well was the commitment to the lack of pen and paper in mm, the Star mm. Wars universe, which is something that has been a you know That's it's a been a point. dictum within the Star Wars universe since the first trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, in a school of all places, if you were going to break that rule, then this would be where you'd do it, surely. And even here, they're like, no, everybody's got a little electronic tablet. There is no paper in the yep. Star Wars universe. We're there's, sticking with it. There's another great bit of that later where a character is using essentially what's like a little pocket notebook, but it's actually like a little computer, essentially, to yeah. write up stuff, which I liked. Um, so, uh, we get back to Grief Karga's office where we meet Mithril, who we may remember from episode one of The Mandalorian, who is the, the guy that he brings in right at the start of the series, the blue, uh, aquatic creature. Mithril used to be Grief Karga's bookkeeper and, of course, got creative with his accounting, which is why The Mandalorian brought him in the first place, but he has been thawed out of Carbonite and is working off his debt for 350 years. <laughs> Um, and this is, uh, again, played by Horatio Sands, the SNL alum, who is also apparently a huge Star Wars fan. Um, so uh, we now have Dune, uh, Cara Dune and Grief Cargo want Mand- Mando's help basically eliminating an Imperial base that is causing trouble and keeping them from sort of securing Navarro overall. That's where Gideon's troops came from at the end of last season. Uh, there's a skeleton crew there, and it's filled with weapons that the black market wants to get its hands on. And until they get rid of it, they can't really establish Navarro as sort of a safe haven for the sector. It seems to be an awful lot of just very, very shoddy research and reconnaissance <laughs> going on here. They've got they? a lot of other stuff to do, right? They're maintaining this town. They don't have time to go out to a base and look at stuff. But it's just going to be an easy job. It's going to be an easy job in, out. You know, Mandalorian's got to wait for his ship to get fixed anyway. So he's got downtime. Of course, he wants to spend it going to an Imperial base. Of course. They uh, hop a speeder into the hills, and the plan is to basically overload the reactor in the base and then get out. Mithril is extremely nervous through all of this and keeps trying to get out of it um, as he drives them to the place. I'll leave you here. I'll come back for you. No, I'm not going in. Of course, none of those things happened. He is forced to accompany them to the entire entire mission. Um, There's an elevator that they try to get in through, but it's not working at first, so the Mandalorian flies up. And uh, throws some stormtroopers off the edge of this base. They do seem rather keen on plummeting stormtroopers this season, don't they? That's at least the second time this has happened. Yeah, that's true. It's an easy way to dispose of them. Those, those armor is not rated for anything, least of all being thrown from a great height. Uh, I did. There's a little sound thing here that I loved, where when Mithril's eventually forced to get out of the speeder, he does like a car alarm thing with it, where you're like, boop, 
beep. Uh, oh, which I, I it's that. just a little bit there. And it's like, <laughs> of course, yes, of course, your speeder has a little car alarm on it. Um, and the, uh, on top of the Mando's taking out a bunch of stormtroopers. They're going to go and drain the cooling lines to overload the reactor. We get a brief look at the Trexler Marauder, which would be worth a lot on the black market, which is one of those Easter eggs inspired by a classic uh, Kenner toy from like 1978. It's been seen oh, in a few wow. different forms over the years, like as a, like an Imperial troop transport, basically. Uh, it shows up in Rebels, I think, a few times. Um, but And this is a slightly different version of it, but it's kind of you know inspired by that clearly wait is that the imperial transport that you could put stormtrooper figures in in the side side, yes oh yes i I think we may have even seen one show up briefly at the end of last season when moff gideon shows up there might be one in the background that shows up with a bunch of troops um also there's a like Chekhov is working overtime here as we see that and then we speed these see the rows of speeder bikes uh yes. and like just like <laughs> ah, they gotta walk through all these things on the way in that does not bode well for getting out um they find an imperial officer who they subdue and take his little code cylinder thing and then it's on to the heat shaft and as i we were talking about a little bit before this is the the great design uh, production design here of the base which does convey that classic, you know, imperial base Death Star oh, feeling totally. to it. Yeah. The, the hexagonal corridors um, and the just the lights and everything. It's just a and, great looking set. And the lack of guardrails yes, on the that, controller. That made me laugh <laughs> so hard yeah. when they make Mithril go out to the thing that looks like the tractor beam controls from uh, New Hope. And <laughs> there's no guardrail. What? Why? Why? Why are the controllers on that side? <laughs> that Why no aren't they? <laughs> makes no sense but i love the lean into it because of course we're all so used to it being that dumb um there's some classic death star sounds every once in a while in the background with like little like alarms and stuff like that everything yeah everything you know clearly a love letter as you say it's just it feels and looks like an imperial base uh you know in the same way that the the ship we see later looks like Mm -hmm. an imperial ship like everything about the design is just so it's it's faithful yeah impeccable right like they're they're clearly just going over all those classics and just with like a fine-tooth cone and being like all right how do we rebuild this essentially or, yeah. or something that looks like it extrapolate from this how this would look um so they managed to turn off the coolant lines and the lava starts bubbling up also mithril points out that he's afraid of heights and heat and lava <laughs> which <laughs> aren't we all <laughs> yeah no none of that sounds great <laughs> Uh, they've got 10 minutes to get out, but of course the troopers are calling in reinforcements, and as they uh, sort of sneak through the base on their way out, they encounter some scientists who appear to be purging stuff off the drives. They have a quick fight with them, and then they uh, discover what seem to be these weird vats with stuff floating in them, and everybody is kind of freaked out by this because they thought it was just a base, but it turns out that there's a lab here and there's some experiments happening. Mithril gets into with, the system Good. with some very clunky dialogue. We should point yeah. out that, like, there's, there's. I will say the the episode I really liked, but the actual script for this episode is pretty clunky in places. Some of the dialogue here, and it's not about delivery; it's literally about the lines that are written are just bad. You know, this whole like this is not a forward base at all. It's a laboratory. Like, really? Really did we need to have all those words in that sentence? I don't think anybody would actually speak like that. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so strange. One of the things that I... So, obviously, the first thing most people think of when they see bodies floating in liquid in Star Wars is back to tank. Yeah. Uh, But clearly, these are not that. 
and I was suddenly put in mind of the uh, Snoke. Yeah. Spoilers, sorry. The <laughs> Snoke vats in uh, yes. Last Jedi. And then when I looked it up on Wikipedia, that is exactly apparently what they are based on. That's exactly what they're supposed to evoke. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, so we don't know exactly what's going on here. Uh, the, 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 it's hard to see into the vats because they're all cloudy and sort of muddled and stuff. But it looks like it's like deformed or misshapen humanoids in there. Um, we get a hologram message from Dr. Pershing, who in the, uh, the preview package kindly reminded us is the doctor brought in by the client, Werner Herzog, last season to experiment on the child once the child was retrieved. And we get a uh, basically a story about essentially them doing blood transfusions from the child to try and do something with these people, with these volunteers, but it didn't go well. And eventually the bodies rejected the blood. And there is a uh, fun for everyone reference to they will not find any, any uh, donor with a higher M count, <laughs> which uh, yes. really again. So Dave Filoni, who is is deeply involved with the production of this show, is well known for being um, a defender of the prequels. Um, but I think even he has his limits in terms of things that he sorts. And so this, you know, skating as close as we're ever we, probably we going to hear. Not say the word. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> but we all know where it's going. Um, and so clear that this is something related to force powers or uh, connection with the force. But we're not entirely sure what they're trying to do other than presumably transfer transfer those force powers in some ways. Um, through blood transfusions through is, blood is transfusions. what's implied. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, uh, you know, the Mandalorian thinks this is, you know, must be an old message because it's addressed to Moff Gideon, who he believes is dead. And of course, we know isn't. And this is now confirmed for the Mandalorian as well, who suddenly realizes that if Gideon's not dead, it means the child is still in danger. So he runs back and then jetpacks off to get back to the kid. Well, I the, like how he jetpacks up out through the lava, the lava chimney. Yeah, yeah. He really gets, also gets shot a bunch of times by stormtroopers, which it all bounces off the best car. And that, you know, there were some great jokes out there about this, including how in the uh, original trilogy, the stormtroopers couldn't hit anything. And now they always hit him, but it doesn't matter because he's got the armor yeah. on. <laughs> and it, it makes me wonder well, again, if you're foreshadowing, like sooner or later, he's going to get shot with something that is going to go through that armor or could be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's. It's once again, this is just how action storytelling works. He only gets shot when it's uh, important to right. the story because there are plenty of other instances in this episode, in this very episode, as well as obviously many other episodes where the stormtroopers can't hit the side of a banter right. from yeah. three feet. So, uh, yeah, the fact that all of these stormtroopers are suddenly uncannily accurate. <laughs> Right. <laughs> when it comes this, to shooting at his yeah. best car. These are the ones just who survived. It, Maybe they're just the, to put him the in a bit ones. of jeopardy as he's escaping. Yeah, he's, uh, you know. I do really of, like there was a little bit when they are pinned down in the lab and uh, they're shooting at the stormtroopers and Mithril is hiding behind the console and is like holding the gun up over it and he shoots the last guy in the face without even. He's got like one yeah. eye closed, <laughs> which I enjoyed. That was a. Well, he can't see out of it, remember? After that's right. That's right. The, he can't uh, see out of his left carbonate. eye after carbonite. <laughs> <laughs> um so they're trying to get out the trio um and they decide the only way they're pinned down by troopers so they go for the marauder which we had hinted at oh, earlier well, wait one thing i wanted, wanted to mention here was we were talking about the the production design of the imperial architecture one thing i've noticed they really leaned into in the mandalorian specifically is those hexagonal corridors yes and how they give you convenient cover right for to have corridor shootouts which i don't think was ever really a thing <laughs> in any of the movies but they really There's leaned a brief, into it with mandalorian um uh in the uh detention level in the death star 
uh, when Luke and Han are pinned down. They're sort of pressed against the wall as the the stormtroopers are down the corridor shooting at them. So right, I think that I don't remember those buttresses being quite so. They probably weren't you know, quite as giving quite so much good cover. The architects were all like, <laughs> you know what, we need more cover. Let's let's build those out a little yeah. bit. Um, so we, uh, Cara Dune grabs the Marauder and tries to get them out. Uh, it, the door, let's sort of, I guess the, the way out the tunnel out or something gets closed on them. So they're forced to instead go over the edge of the cliff, uh, which is a fun scene as, yeah, uh, Carl yeah. Weathers and Horatio Sands just freak out as she drives over and, and Cara Dune's just like grinning to herself as she flies the thing off. But and- repulsor, isn't it? So, you know. Yeah, it's I don't think it's gonna, designed it's to do that, but yeah, it does seem to work. And of course, it, the the speeder, uh, Mithril speeder, cushions the landing and yeah. it's smashed to bits. <laughs> um, and we have a sort of a long, fun action sequence as they're pursued by the biker scouts who jump over the edge. And it looks, seemed like they're doing really great for a second there. And then two of them collide into each other and blow up, of course. That scene is great, though. When they speed out of the base and they do that drop down mm-hmm. onto the lava flow uh, just brilliant that to me is like yes this is star wars style action that's exactly the sort of thing that you want uh i mean i love speeder bikes anyway who doesn't yeah but the way that scene was shot the way it was filmed uh the design of it was just everything was like yes more of this this is exactly what i want yeah. from my star wars right yeah it's great looking too i commented this in my notes uh shortly after this there's a scene where the tie fighters take off as the base explodes mm. behind them and it is a fantastic shot and it's like yeah. also it's like a movie level shot right like so much of this episode i think they they clearly you know, we're willing to spend the money on the effects as they have been throughout the entire series. But like, there are some great looking visuals in this episode for a, you know, eight episode TV series. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, right. Well, but you can make up for that when you've got things like the Ice Cavern episode. Right. Which, you know, I mean, had its own share of effects shots, but let's be frank, you know, was very, very small in terms of scope and set. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, you can just distribute things around. Also, they didn't have the setup costs. Mm. you know which you get with the first season so uh they could you know assuming they had the same budget or possibly even a larger budget for season two they could they can spend more of it on shots and effects like this and it absolutely pays off yeah absolutely um so the scouts follow them uh karga gets one of them and the other two sort of split up and one of the scouts jumps on top while the other one gets crushed by cara dune that one on top is a grenade that he's about to drop, but Cargo like swivels around the turret and and shoots him, and he explodes, and his helmet like falls off behind them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then we have the Tie Fighters taking off and following, um, you know, and they've celebrated. Oh, we got away! And of course, now the Tie Fighters are overhead. That may have been premature, says Mithril. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a lot of shooting at the canyon walls, which uh, on the one hand I felt was like, is this, it's riding the line between, is he just that bad at hitting things? And also maybe it's way easier to shoot walls and have rocks fall on top of TIE fighters than actually nail a TIE fighter. I if it was supposed to be a tactic, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I have a note here too, which I think is interesting. I think this is probably the longest amount of time in any episode of this entire series that we go without the Mandalorian in a scene. Because it's a solid... Oh, you might be right, yeah. It's probably close to a solid, I don't know, seven to ten minutes, I feel like, of this entire sequence of them getting out of the base. Like, as soon as Mando jets off, we don't see him again uh, for several minutes. So I thought it's... it, It is an interesting 
Like we haven't had a lot of other characters that we spend a lot of time with, uh, aside from the child. I think Reef Karga and Cara Dune are the other two like sort of major recurring characters. They're certainly the only ones, aside from you know Moff Gideon as well, that we kind of still have around from the first season. So it, it kind of feels like it leans a little more heavily on them in this episode, which I thought was an interesting choice of willing to expand the scope beyond just the Mandalorian and the child. Yeah, well, and they follow up on that with Mm -hmm. the sort of coda scenes with both Grief and Kara getting their own little character moments at the end as well. And again, that's one of the things I like about what you can do in a TV show that you can't do in a movie, which is you can have those moments and you can deepen these characters and you can make the promise we are going to come back to these characters. You will see more of them. You will get to know them better. They will you know, their stories will uh, become more involved and intertwined. Mm-hmm. And like I say, you you can't make that promise in movies, but you can do it here. And they are, as you say, because they're characters that we got to know during the first season, they are characters that we want to see more of. And we right, want right. to know more about them and see their their arcs and their relationships deepen. Yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I think you might agree with this. In some ways, it feels like movies tend to be a little bit more like short stories where it's like it's very focused and like there's not a lot of room for digression whereas tv shows i think are a little more like novels where it's like you can spend a chapter talking about this stuff that maybe isn't like super critical to the main plot but it's still like you got a little time to delve into this other stuff you have the space to do it that's exactly that yeah there is no time to waste in uh, a movie i mean you know frankly that's an issue that I have with some modern movie making mm-hmm. is that there's a little bit too much padding right. sometimes. Right. Uh, and, you know, a lot of modern films could stand to be a bit leaner because it's just the nature of the medium uh, and the time that you have. Whereas, yeah, in a TV show where you go in knowing, OK, this is going to be several hours. This is going to be a long, serialized, many hours long story. Like you say, it's like going into a novel. And so you are much more prepared for those digressions and accepting of them because you trust that they will become important later on. And this goes to the way that the whole season, the arc of the season is structured as well. I mean, in season one, we were all at one point going, seems to be a lot of filler going on here. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, it all, all of those so-called filler episodes at the end of the season came back together and we were like, oh, no, actually, these were all really important. And I'm sure that's going to happen here as well. Well, we've already got it with things like the recurring uh, X-Wing pilot. Yep. Yep. Who turns up at the end of this episode, who was previously only introduced alongside Dave Filoni in a cameo um, in the Ice Cavern episode, which did kind of feel like filler. But even so, I was remembering season one as I watched that. I was thinking, no, okay, this, this is clearly some elements of this are going to be important in sure, the later yeah. part of the season well, in just the same way that happened in season one right a lot of season one was about him like being kind of a loner but b- building out his his allies and like his i think squad. yeah exactly <laughs> exactly and some of that is i think coming back here i would not even be surprised to see the uh the frog couple again you know if he needs a place to hide Another the child no, or no. something like that you know i i think that's all going to come into play and i think it will oh, look God, no, more don't important. hide the child with them he'll eat all <laughs> He's fine with the tadpoles. It's just the eggs. It's just the eggs. God, I was so nervous. I know everyone. Everyone's, 
<laughs> just like, don't eat it, don't eat it. Uh, all right, so Grief Cargo manages to shoot down one TIE fighter, but it crashes into the transport and ruins their guns. They get to the open plains and have to sort of make a run for it, and the TIEs are lining up their shots when the Razor Crest appears to save them. Uh, the kid, <laughs> the child is still eating the cookies, but he's finally got a seatbelt, which is great because that was making me last. nervous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's giggling like he's on a roller coaster the whole time. I, as I love the oh, way he's so got good. his hands up in the air, yeah. going wee. Uh, and, and frankly, just a really fun uh, sequence where the Mandalorian, you know, we've seen him kind of hampered by the ship in the last couple episodes. Like, we know he's a very capable pilot, but everything's been kind of clunky and broken. And now it appears the Razor Crest is back in, you know, tip top shape. And he does these uh, a couple great bits, including I just love that shot with the power dive where he like goes up and like kills the engines and then turns around reverse and does like the yeah, suicide yeah. run at the tie fighter it's just it's great it's looking. yeah yeah, yeah. uh it's... and they're on the ground cheering as he you know destroys the last ties and of course everything seems like it's gone great and then the kid throws up the blue <laughs> cookies <everywhere>. yeah <laughs> which again anybody who knows kids yep again yeah and again he does know he's just like okay eat your cookies whatever i don't care oh wait maybe i should have thought about that yeah (laughs) he's learning he's learning slowly um he amanda's gonna take off because he's got to stay a a step ahead of gideon he's got a place to go uh and he and grief carga you know exchange a like uh thanks for the repairs thanks for killing all the imperials uh, and then we have our coda with the New Republic X-Wings, where our Captain Carson Tiva, played by the uh, Canadian actor Paul Sun Young Lee, who is a huge Star Wars fan, as everybody who has probably followed a little bit of this afterwards, like, he's like a cosplayer and everything, so he is just... Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, he's like, he, he has... I saw a great interview with him where he was talking about how excited he was and, like, how when he was talking to a friend of his who worked on the show... And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you should, we should get you in. And he's like, you know, I have pictures of all my cosplay on my phone right now. And he was, like, pulling out, like, <laughs> pictures of him in his, all, like, Imperial uniform. And it's, it's like, yeah, so that Available I, I love Available for how, hire, can supply, own costume. Yes, exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the sweetener right there. Uh, but he's, like, the little beat cop again. He's got his little electronic, you know, notepad that he's writing, taking down his, his citations on. And he's interviewing Karga. And Grief Cargo's like, ah, oh, I never say anything about a Razor Crest showing up. You know, all those old ships look the same. Uh, this isn't Coruscant. We don't have fancy technology. Uh, and he's also a little passive-aggressive, right? Because he says, like, you know, I'll let you know if I hear anything, if you're ever out this far again. Which was a really nice touch. I mean, it was a callback to literally a line that he had at the start of the episode when he point you know as you said like you know why would the new republic think that they can tame the outer rim if the empire couldn't yeah um but it is also just a nice little bit of both character and world building to emphasize that yeah these are the sort of lawless reaches and the new republic doesn't normally come out this far and it is a bit wild west right exactly and there's you know there there seems to be just some dispute in that as we learn you know so uh, the x-wing pilot goes to talk to cara dune you know it's like oh i you know you're clearly quite a soldier we could use your help and we need like you know local support essentially here uh and cara dune's you know like i'm you know i'm not interested i'm doing my own thing and then we get this this interesting bit, which I think is sort of a larger link in here, where he talks about, like, there's something going on in the Outer Rim, mm. and they don't believe this back in the Core Worlds, but it's true, and, like, we need to sort of figure out what that is. It's going to be dangerous. And then they have a brief exchange about Alderaan, uh, reminding us, of course, that Cara Dune is Alderanian and lost everybody in the war. And he leaves her... I, I guess I have a couple different opinions on what this is. It looked like it could either be a medal or a badge, and I'm not sure what it was intended 
Yeah, I'm not sure either. I think it's meant to be some kind of insignia badge. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's clearly the Rebel Flame, yep. and so I assume it's something to do with either the Rebellion or the New Republic. Right. But, I mean, it also wasn't clear what he was talking about when he said there's something going on here. It does he, Is he talking about events with the Mandalorian, or does he mean yeah. something else? Or it's all a bit vague yeah he says uh, he that- says they're not isolated incidents and we we yeah i thought my impression was maybe some of the stuff with with moff gideon or the various things right. that the mandalorian has done but it's yeah you're right it's unclear it's unclear but again because this is in a coda and it's clearly meant to be a setup for things to come that's okay it's all right that yeah. it's not explained and it's all right that we're left going well what's he actually talking about because we will surely find out right, later right. in the season yeah i was wondering if some of it might be him trying to sort of recruit her as a you know uh, essentially like a rebel police officer of sorts or like a, you know uh yeah. sort of officializing her position here but yeah she's clearly it seems like she's not interested though there's you know maybe a little bit of dubiousness there she's also feeding the weasel that she rescued before which yes, i thought was fun that was good. um and then we get our final part of the coda which is on board an imperial light cruiser uh our our payoff from earlier as the tech reports uh to an imperial officer that they have planted a homing beacon on board the razor crest uh, which that the officer in turn reports to our old friend Moff Gideon, who is in a creepy gas-filled chamber. He asks if the Mandalorian still has the asset, which they confirm he does. And he says, we'll be ready uh, as we get a pan back with some techs working on these mysterious black armored figures. Yes, dark troopers, I've seen they've been sort of nicknamed, or that's what they're referred to rather in the audio description, apparently, of this Interesting. episode. Interesting. But we don't know whether that's Which an was, official name for them. And Dark Troopers, again, you know, going into my deep knowledge, Dark Troopers is a term that has been used a lot over the many years for a bunch of different things. Uh, oh, okay. I I started thinking of it immediately in um, the classic video game Dark Forces, which was sort of the first Star Wars uh, FPS uh, way back in the 90s. Though, like, there are some really scary, like, Dark Troopers that are, like, the, the big bad guys there. Although, I think they're robots, I want to say. They're droids. Um, well, and it's not clear whether these yeah. are human or whether they're something to do with those experiments. Exactly. Or, as you say, whether they're droids. It's, you know, we literally yeah. just see some vague black armored yeah. outlines. S- slightly Cylon looking with like a, yeah. like a single eye. I thought that as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, they're not quite the same. So we did see briefly last season the Death Troopers as well, which are the um, black uh, armored stormtroopers that I think first show up in Rogue One working for Ben Mendelsohn's character. Um, oh yeah i'd forgotten about that but and, and they show up briefly in the scene where he has them uh, pinned down in the bar we see like a squad of them but they, yeah. the armor looks different it's not quite this those look closer to stormtrooper armor and these look more like i don't know yeah there's something there's something different so yeah i i think the the smart money is probably on them having to do something with those experiments since that has been led into there but we don't know that for sure and what we do know is that like those experiments mostly didn't go very well. So. Right, which is why I'm yeah not at all confident that that is a connection. But as you say, it's given that it's Moff Gideon, it's you know would be a uh, an educated guess to make. But again, this is a coder. It's a cliffhanger. Clearly, we're going to find this out later. Uh, for now. All we know is that Mando's going to have to shoot all these black stormtroopers <laughs> at some point. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, this also marks the halfway point for the season. 
Um, so we've now got like our, our midway, oh, yeah, that's right. uh, our midway, like sort of downhill probably into the back half as like things start to gather steam. Um, and I think that's interesting to look forward and think like, we've got a lot of players on the board now. Like it feels like a lot of pieces have been set up where we've got Gideon and his mysterious troopers. We've got Bo-Katan and the Mandalorians out there. We've got Ahsoka out there. Um, you know, he's got his, his allies, um, so it feels like a lot of stuff has sort of been moved into place for these last four episodes. Uh, and I'm kind of curious if you have any, any, any speculation. We also, let's not forget, and I did had, had forgotten until I was thinking about it just this morning. Uh, we still have like the Boba Fett out there somewhere that, oh yeah, from the first episode, which like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think they're kind of <laughs> counting <laughs> on, like they dropped that early. So everyone would forget about it. We'll after forget all it. The I had stuff. forgotten yeah. about it until you mentioned it. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I, I don't know any, any ideas or any thoughts on what you, what we might see coming forward. Uh, no, no. And honestly, I am, even though I'm a writer, I'm actually a sort of a writer's dream in that when I am watching a movie or a TV show like this or even reading a book, I actually don't try to sort of think ahead too much. I mm-hmm. trust the storyteller to just take me wherever they want me to go. Um, I mean, I will, you know, if it's a murder mystery, I'll try to figure out who did it, that sort of thing. But I don't actively try to predict where things are going to go. Um and I had I haven't really done this. I certainly didn't do it last season, and I would have been horribly wrong in any case. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I wouldn't really like to try to do it here because, as you say, there are so many pieces on the board. I mean, there's also you know on the other side there's uh, the experiments. There's mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Moff Gideon himself. There's the X wings. Yeah, there is, as right, you said, right. there's the the frog couple and all that. There's all these factors that could come into play. Some of them surely will. Some of them might not. There are so many different directions that it could go in. I mean, we still haven't actually even met Ahsoka right, yet. Right, and, and clearly she's going to be in it. Or, you know, so, yeah, there's so many different ways is- it could go that I'm happy to just sit back and let it come to me, as it were. And what I like, too, about the way they're sort of pacing this is they also show themselves comfortable with leaving stuff for a while so like you know mithril showing back up in this episode after not being seen since episode one uh dr pershing our imperial scientist who hasn't been seen i think since episode three of last you know the first season like Mm -hmm. these characters he'll you know it trusts us to be like yeah we're gonna leave that over there but we'll get back to it like you said like we we have not only just for developing subplots but also just keeping the plot moving is like we're willing to put stuff in the background and back burner it for a you know even a season potentially knowing that we're going to pay this off down the line. I still think back to, I think, episode five from the first season, where at the end, uh, Fennec Shand, Ming-Na Wen's character, is found by a mysterious individual whose boots jangle as they walk up to them. Haven't gotten back to that either. So, like, there's 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 loose ends hanging here and there, and I, I'm okay with that because... Wait, have we not? Was no. that not the Was that not the marshal from the Crate Dragon episode? I, it certainly hasn't been confirmed... Uh, oh, okay. Okay. It, it could be someone else. Could be Boba Fett. Could be. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I thought it might have been Moff Gideon at one point, even. But like, I think they. I think they are trusting that they can dangle these things out there, and then pay them off later because they kind of know yeah. where they're going. It does feel like they have an assurance in themselves in telling this story. That's not like a. Ooh, let's put this. Let's put this thing here, and we'll figure out later, right? Well, like what what that means. It feels very well, much like they're setting up things. Like, oh yeah, we know what this is going to be. We're just not ready to tell you yet. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, some of it, yes, absolutely. Um, stuff like the 
as you say, those the, the appearance of the jangly boots, that's clearly, you know, they must have had somebody in mind when they did that because it's so distinctive. But things like uh, the like Methrol showing up again. Right, that's like fair, that's fair. That's probably a decision that was made, you know, for this episode. Oh, let's bring him back, why not? Right. Uh, yeah. Then you get things like the reappearance of Pershing and stuff. Well, clearly, what I reckon is probably the case is that they... Because there's no suggestion in the first season of what they want the child for. Right. And my assumption is that they had a vague idea... But because it was one season, and we all know many, many shows, TV shows only last one season, they probably didn't build it out that much. And then when the first season was so popular and so successful, it was very, very clear that they were going to get to continue and make more. Then they probably went, OK, let's sit down and figure out exactly what this is all about. So I think from this point on, yes, absolutely. Every, you know, they know where they're going and they're introducing characters with a very deliberate thought to bring them back again later. But in the first season, I'm not so sure about that. So, you know, the guy who played the Doctor, let's say Dr. Pershing, probably may have thought that he would never be back again. (laughs) Right, Um, yeah. But then when they're developing it, they go, okay, well, what's he doing? And so for this episode, it's like, okay, so how can we get this across to the characters Let's have a hologram with a message from Pershing to Moff Gideon. Yeah, that makes sense. Let's get him back. Um, but I feel that that was probably a decision not made until they knew they were going to get a season two. Although that, I think my understanding is that was fairly early that they did know that was going to happen. So I think they had a little bit of runway on that in terms of just knowing like, because I think it was by the time. Early in production? Uh, probably early uh, in broadcast. Certainly early in broadcast. It was publicly known, I feel like, even within the first couple episodes that they had gotten renewed. But I think internally, probably, I feel like they had a pretty good feeling internally it was going to happen. But you're right that the, some of this stuff may not have then been decided even until later, until they were, you know, into production on season two. But yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think there is stuff. There's plot development, certainly, that they're happy to dangle out there and then maybe filling those in with characters, some already established, some new characters as they go makes a lot of sense in terms of, you know, you also want to figure out who's available, right? Like who you can get, etc. So that, yeah. there's always logistical challenges with that, too. Well, and and you and I both know as storytellers that all you have to do is introduce a character who might only have one sort of small purpose. And then if you bring them back, people will go, aha, they're back. You know, it was all part of some grand plan, even if it wasn't. You can do that. So, uh, yeah, and as what, a storyteller, again, you always say, yes, of course. Of course That's entirely yeah. what I had in mind. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But like I say, so I'm sure this episode probably wasn't scripted with Mithril in mind. But then at some point, originally, I mean, like, or outlined with him in mind, but then somebody went, hang on, we've got this character, why not bring him back? You know, and yeah, that, that yeah. when that decision was made, like, okay, well, let's get this character that people know, we'll call back to the very first episode, it'll look great. But I very, very much doubt that at the early stages of sure, planning for yeah. this episode, that you know, that this character specifically it was like oh yes we've got to have this character in it because right, he doesn't right. he could be replaced by any other yes, character absolutely really. absolutely yeah uh i do want to call out a couple other things about this episode production wise it was directed by carl weathers um yeah which is great i think he did a fantastic job this is a i mean as we mentioned it's an action heavy episode and i mean i guess he is action jackson so that makes sense uh, but <laughs> <laughs> well but but i noticed uh 
And I only noticed it this episode, but it was true of last episode as well, that the second unit director is one Sam Hargrave, who was the stunt coordinator of Atomic Blonde. Oh. And and then directed Extraction, the uh, movie with Chris Hemsworth. Nice. Okay, so, so lots of action experience there. Right, exactly. And so, because I remember watching last episode and thinking, wow, Bryce Dallas Howard can really direct action. <laughs> and and sh- I'm sure she can. I'm not taking anything away from her. But when you have a second unit director like Sam Hargrave, you know you are going to get quality second unit action stuff, you know, and some great uh, experience of directing stunts and performing those stunts so yeah you know i'm not surprised that these two episodes have been really really good in terms of how the action is presented and i want to note as well there's an interesting connection um last episode had like three separate actors who had all appeared in episodes of agents of shield uh and this week had another one in the um the the officer at the very end who relays to Moff Gideon the message on the, on oh, the cruiser. Really? Yeah, she has been she was in the last season, the final season of Agents of Shield for three or four episodes as kind of a, si- a side character. But she had also popped up on Black Lightning, I think too. I was like, she was one of those people with like a, she's got a very distinct look about her. And as soon as I saw her, I was like, oh, it's her again. I've seen her like all over all of a sudden. But <laughs> I mean, obviously, Agents of Shield, Disney. I think there is some casting crossover because I believe the woman who's the casting director for the Mandalorian is also the woman who did all the MC you casting um which also i think oh, explains right. why their casting is so good so because good. yeah <laughs> clearly clearly they have a great eye for finding people who can yeah. who can fit a particular role so well done as always while, while i'm doing six degrees incidentally i should also point out for people who don't know that the uh the virtual the head of virtual production basically the guy in charge of like you know sort of the sfx production design and what have you for this show is ian millen mm. and ian was also the art director for all of the Dead Space video games. Ah. Which, cool. you know, obviously have some fantastic art direction. Yeah, He's a sure. really, really great and talented guy. Uh, and, uh, yeah, that was... I, I've... Yeah, he appears in the gallery episodes as well. You can oh, see cool. him there talking about uh, the stuff, and he's been really heavily involved in the volume and the uh, Epic software and stuff like that. So, again, you know, sort of seeing the 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 top flight talent that they're bringing to this yeah. show, people who really really know how to take this tech and these production techniques and film this kind of show, and to the absolute best quality. You know, the people who are like I say at the top of their field. So it's again speaks to how well it is supported mm-hmm. and how highly mm-hmm. uh, Disney thinks of it that it's given that kind of resources and that kind of, I don't want to say hands-off necessarily, but there has to be, and you get this impression from watching the gallery episodes about season one, you can tell that there's a certain amount of, we trust John Favreau to do this, and Filoni, sure, but, you know, Favreau is like the figurehead, as it were, and we trust him to do this, and some of this is a bit off the wall, but we're going to place that trust in him and they've been well rewarded for it i agree and and it's also worth pointing out that with episode nine finished and current fate of current star wars movies you know there, there will be some eventually i'm sure but there's nothing public right now the mandalorian is basically carrying the star mm. wars legacy at this point it is the premier star wars property going on out there right now and i think that that's is, a good point it's very high profile that, yeah. right so yeah so putting all that trust and money into it i think you know shows that they understand that that this is what's carrying on star wars as a property kind of 
you know, until and if the, the, the movies come along again, or, I mean, obviously there are other TV shows in the work is, works as well, but The Mandalorian is right now pretty much the only show in town, so I think it's interesting. But I love... I love that they're doing that with a show like this that is mm-hmm. about the Outer Rim and that is not filled with lightsabers and Jedi and Force use all over the place. Um, you know, that's... I mean, we can hope, we can only hope that that will filter out to some of the other media as well when they see that you can have a flagship show, a really popular show, and as you say, bearing the flag for Star Wars, that doesn't focus on those elements and it can still be really popular with Mm -hmm. people i hope that they take that to heart yeah same all right well we could obviously spend another hour talking about just the mandalorian and star wars in general but we won't (laughs) there's one thing there's one thing before we wrap up that i wanted to mention and that is the closing credits oh yeah the The the, i love the concept art thing it's great partly just because you know concept artists don't get the props and credit that they deserve frankly in all manner of filmed production and also video games incidentally um so i think that's great but one of the things that i especially love about them is that they don't redraw them mm-hmm. like you can tell there are th- that things have changed yes. there have been changes changed, made during production scenes yep yep for example in this you've got the weasel breathing fire yeah <laughs> in the concept art you've got a human teacher not a droid yep uh, in the classroom, you know, little things like that. And yet they have that confidence that people will understand this is concept right, art. Right. Uh, to not go back and redraw or, them. When they could, it would yeah, be very even, easy for them to do that. Even making the characters look more like Grief Karga and, and yeah. Cara Dune don't look like Gina Carano and Carl Weathers exactly, but they're clearly recognizable. You, you well, would know who they are. They look more like them now than, than they, they did, did in the, the concept season. art yeah. in season yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think this some of that is a is a tip of the hat sort of testament to the effect that say Ralph McQuarrie especially had mm. on the early Star Wars stuff and realizing how instrumental oh, sure. he was like sort of reflecting how instrumental concept art is in general to the Star Wars universe and part of the production experience. But it's great. Yeah, I, I agree. I really enjoy that. It adds a whole different dimension to it. It really does, yeah. And the music, as always, is oh, yeah. great. I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I love the music. And I should note that the as of this week, uh, when they released the last episode, there is now a season two soundtrack album covering chapters nine through 12, the first half of the season. It oh, is, is it finally out? It right, is finally right. out. Uh, it is, to my opinion, I opine this on, on Twitter, it's a little sparse because it's like 50 minutes of music for four episodes as opposed to last season, they gave you like 20 to 30 minutes per episode. And there's I mean, clearly a lot more music that has been written and produced for these episodes. They just decided to do it in a, in a group well, album. But, but has there? Because I seem to recall reading, because they finished filming this season only a couple of weeks before... The pandemic. March, yeah. basically, before the pandemic lockdown. And I'm sure I remember seeing somewhere that they said that the music hadn't been done hmm. uh, at that point, because music is always one of the last things sure. to yeah. be done. You know, high score composers will always tell you that they are, you know, always under the gun to get these things written quickly, and especially for TV. Uh, and I'm sure I remember reading that they had had real problem, that Ludwig Göransson had had a real trouble uh, getting the not getting it written per se, but getting it recorded well, because right, of the getting an orchestra of... together. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it may be actually that there just literally isn't as much music hmm. and that they're reusing cues more. Okay. That's a fair point. I hadn't thought about that. People did bring up the possibility of reusing cues. I didn't think that was necessarily the case, but it's a great point from a logistics standpoint that it is hard to record all of that. And certainly he does a lot of work with non-orchestral orchestral stuff as well. 
um, which he sure, but probably there are only so many hours in the day. Huh? Yep, yep. Sure enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It would be interesting to to hear more about that. I don't remember seeing that original news piece, but I'll be I'll go I'll go do some poking around. But I think we can also certainly expect a second album. Uh, at the end of the season covering sure. the back half, which I still look forward to. So uh, I'm still glad that the music is out there. Uh, and I really, it's it's fantastic, as we've said. All right, we should wrap up because, you know, I, I promised you, I was like, oh, it doesn't go longer than an hour. And I think we beat that a little bit this week. Yeah, so this fine. may be our longest episode. <laughs> but Anthony Johnson, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me, Dan, and allowing me to witter on at length. <laughs> <laughs> always a pleasure you out there listening thank you so much we hope you enjoyed this week's episode we'll be back next week with a guest to talk about chapter 13 and until then this is the way <laughs>